The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm really glad that you could tune in and join me. This is my first new show in a few weeks and the first new one with a slightly different format. If you've been listening to any of our or my previous shows, then you'll know that I had been publishing out my weekly radio show on Unity Online Radio and pushing that out as a podcast. And now I'm having these conversations just in a podcast format, which is a little bit different, not much, but still a little bit different. So I'm kind of getting used to this. And going forward, you know, I still want to have conscious conversations with people who are seekers like I am and interested in the many mysteries of life, you know, but also I'm looking forward to doing something a little different with this podcast and maybe having some slightly different conversations and introducing some other topics along the way. So, you know, I'm just kind of flying out there on the seat of my pants and we'll see what unfolds. But I'm really excited for the conversation today because in in my mind, this is kind of going completely full circle for me. So as many of you may know, the online network that I was working with, Unity, Unity Online Radio, recently stopped broadcasting after over a decade. And kind of at, at the same time, like on a parallel path over the past two and a half years, I've been working on building a new podcast platform called mindbodyspirit.fm at the same time. So there's been a lot of fear in starting something new and not knowing the outcome and all of that stuff, but it's been very exciting too. So when I got the opportunity to book my former boss, Jim Blake, the CEO of Unity, to be the first guest on my podcast now going forward in this format, I'm thrilled. I'm like, this is great because now like everything's kind of closing the circle. So it's, it's really cool. I'm going to get a, a chance to talk to him about his book. So Jim has written a book that I think should be required reading for every manager or leader. And it's called The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership. And I've really enjoyed reading this. And I think that anyone in a managerial role or thinking about it could benefit, whether you're in a nonprofit group or the corporate world, which Jim has been in both. So he's got a really great perspective to share. So just a little bit about Jim Blake. And he speaks from decades of experience. So Jim has been a corporate leader working in technology and IT, and he's been the CEO of the Unity Organization, which is a 130-year-old global spiritual nonprofit with an amazing message, which I've really come to love. And I hope that you all check this out, too, if you haven't. Everything Unity has to offer at unity.org. That, that's a whole, whole other story. But Jim's perspective on leadership is such a breath of fresh air. We're going to take a dive into some of those ideas today. And I'm really happy I got him pinned down. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Diane. It's great to see you and great to be with you. I know. This is going to be so fun. I'm excited. So I love that at the beginning of the book, 
You say that for the first half of your life, you thought of yourself as a successful corporate guy who was deeply spiritual, but now you realize that you had it backward, that you're a spiritual guy who has the gift of corporate leadership. And I really, I thought that was an interesting perspective. So I just wanted to start out maybe by talking about that realization a little bit. Sure. So <clears throat> for me, I, I'm much like you alluded to in your opening, I've been a seeker most of my life. Um, I've, I've researched and studied a lot of world religions and have just always been fascinated by how the universe works. And uh, somehow, someday I thought I might come to the answer, but yet we keep seeking. So, but uh, during that journey, um, obviously I was in the corporate world and, and I started learning about all these principles and wanted to begin to apply them. And so I really kept the two compartmentalized, my corporate life from my spiritual life and identified myself as, as you suggested, uh, mostly a corporate guy with this deep spiritual yearning. And over time though, the more I did research and the more I began to be comfortable with sort of the full expression of myself, the more I wanted to bring more of my spiritual self and the principles and the things that I had learned into the workplace and, and, and bring a little bit more of my whole self to the workplace, if you will. And in doing so, I just had this awakening and this, and this awareness that it's actually the opposite. I'm really this deeply spiritual being that has this gift of corporate leadership. And, and the reason it was an awareness for me, it's a lot about how we identify ourselves. And once I began to identify myself in that way, it really gave me permission to further embrace and explore how I might, um, instead of compartmentalize, merge these two things together. And, and so what unfolded was some of the, a lot of the things that you read in the book. It's about how easily our spiritual practices and beliefs and principles can overlap with corporate best practices. And they don't need to be compartmentalized. And in some cases, it's better to have them merged and bring them both to the table. Well said. And I think that so many companies and people in these positions will really benefit from reading this. And I'm thinking back to other past companies that I've worked for, and, and I'll share some of those experiences too, where you would think that it's the most spiritual place in the world, but you still have problems. You know, the, the issues still come up No, and people think, oh, you work in this nirvana, it must be great and everybody gets along. And and that's not always the case. And a lot of the things that you bring up in the uh, the strategies that you share in the book can really be useful, I think, for everybody. So I, I really hope that people give this a read. So I'm curious, what defines a great leader in your mind? And maybe you could share a person that really influenced you or inspired you along the way as a great leader. Yeah, I think uh, great leadership for me, it, it sort of adheres to some of the the principles I talk about in the book. There's a section where I outline sort of five pillars of good leadership. And, and uh, the first one is to put people first. And so that involves having compassion and empathy and understanding that we're all human and we all have lives outside of work. And, and how can you be supportive and bring balance uh, to that in the workplace? The second part is transparency. Um, I think it's very healthy and warranted to be as transparent as you can about as much as you can. Certainly there are things in the workplace you can't be fully transparent about, but I also don't think there needs to be this big mystique and have people hoarding information and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think transparency is the key. And if you're, if you're really transparent, 
that leads to the next one, which is building trust and respect. When you're transparent, people can begin to trust you and they can begin to trust that that you're going to share with them the information they need when they need it, and they feel respected. And in some cases, transparency can be tough because you may not know. I mean, certainly there were times, especially during this the recent pandemic, where we didn't know the answer, but we were just transparent. We didn't know the answer. And as soon as we do know, you know, we'll, we'll update you. So I think those three things to begin with, putting people first, uh, transparency, building trust and respect. And then that leads to the next one, which is all about acknowledgement. Um, great leaders have to remember to acknowledge it's so easy, especially our high performers. High performers in the world are often rewarded with what? More work, right? They don't, they yes. don't get much knowledge and, and they, they get some acknowledgement and some recognition, but they usually get just more work. And so uh, I really, and I wrote about this in the book, I really appreciated this philosophy that the Fillmore's had. They called it Walkabout, or we called it Walkabout Wednesday. Um, but basically they would walk around once a week and just and into different divisions on campus and just thank people for being here, thank them for their service, thank them for choosing to serve at this organization. And so we adopted that as an executive team. And it, it really gave us a chance to get to know the associates. It gave us exposure and it began to build that trust and respect. And the acknowledgement was also extraordinarily meaningful uh, to the associates we serve with. And then finally, this is the last thing. Um, and I think in the book, I refer to it as lighten up, but look, work is serious and can be, and certainly there are serious things that we're all going to need to, to talk about and handle in the workplace. And it can also be fun. You can also allow people the freedom and the flexibility to have fun, to chat with their coworkers, to be transparent. I'm sorry, to, uh, to build relationships with the other folks on their teams. It doesn't have to be so focused. Uh, all the time in an environment of, I'll just call it social oppression, if you will, uh, but rather a place where where people can have some freedom and flexibility to, to have a little bit of fun. All that, when you add that all up, you, what you're going to end up with is someone who feels heard, uh, they feel trusted, they feel respected, they feel appreciated, which makes them feel safe. And so to wrap that all up, what you end up with is someone who's working in an environment where they feel all of those things, they feel safe in the environment, which then frees them up to be more productive. If you contrast that against the idea of, let's say, someone who leads through fear and intimidation, so their whole role is to scare you into getting your work done. Well, how much stress do you think you carry? And how much of that do you carry even home after work? And so which way do you think you're more productive when you're scared to death and afraid that any little mistake will get you fired or when you're, when you're in that happy, I feel safe, trusted and respected space? And, and it seems really logical, but the, the better environment you can create for your associates, uh, I think the more productive they will be, not only at, in the workplace, but but even out in, in society. So a great leader for me is one who embodies all of those things and gives the gives folks the freedom to bring their whole selves to work and uh, and create some space for, for some of the things I talked about. Well, I love what you're saying there for a couple of reasons. Like, I love the idea of bringing compassion into the workplace and also acknowledgement. And that's something that I always tried to do in my limited experience of management. And I'll bring some of those experiences out because I, I, I think they're funny, but I, I would always try to thank people, you know, and that was something that in in my experience working in, in different big organizations, I worked for big companies like iHeartMedia and uh, big publishing companies. 
And so many times I was never thanked or acknowledged for anything that I did. And I always tried to make that a point in people that I worked with, you know, the engineers that I worked with at Unity, I would thank them profusely (laughs) for things. And even the guys that my engineers that I worked with at Hay House, I would always thank them. So I, I think that's really important. And I was thinking back of also, and when you're talking of the fear and intimidation of the terrible managers that I had, people that shouldn't have been in those positions and the damage that it would cause. You know, people would have PTSD, you know, they'd be running to happy hour after work to, you know, pound down a couple of cocktails to to try to get over what happened during that day. And when you're spending so much of your time, you know, eight to 10 hours a day of your life, well, back when we were in offices, you know, when you're with people and you're dealing with someone, I guess now would be called a toxic environment, it, it really takes a toll on everything. I mean, could you mention you know, one or maybe one leader that was really inspirational to you that someone, because I can think of like a leader that I had back when I was just starting out in radio, I was still kind of new when I worked for a, a woman program director and I never had a female boss in that role. It was a very male dominated industry in the beginning. And I always looked up to her and, and how she did things. And I kind of tried to model myself after her and her name's Shirley. And I've mentioned her before and on different shows. So if Shirley Maldonado ever happens to hear this, she was a great uh, inspiration to me as, as a leader. I mean, can you think of somebody like that? I can, but it was at a time before some of the, the things that, that I talk about in the book were, were really uh, even talked about or accepted. He was a bit of a command and control leader, but I worked at uh, one of the region's larger banks. At the time, it was about a $7 billion financial institution. And it was a family-owned uh, bank, and so the father had been running, you know, running this bank for decades and decades. And as you know, banks aren't necessarily known for their cutting-edge innovation. <laughs> and uh, I had a computer science degree, had started there, and part of my role in joining the bank was to convert from these old mainframe terminals to start to put PCs on on each and every desk. I'm dating myself here a little bit, but uh, <laughs> the idea was to, to really become a more progressive institution. And that was due in part to the son had stepped into the CEO role. And what I really liked about him is, first of all, he, he, was, uh, he had a ton of courage. He wasn't afraid to innovate and he wasn't afraid to take risks. So even this idea of putting PCs on every single desktop and, and moving to new technology in a banking institution and a banking system that hadn't been in, innovated in or around for, for decades. He was one of the, the first, he, he led us to be one of the first 50 banks in the world to have an online presence. So this was just when the internet was becoming a thing, you know, back in the, in the nineties with, with Netscape and Mark Andreessen and, and some of those folks. And so I always admired how he just had uh, complete confidence or at least projected confidence and courage in his ability to to jump forward, basically quantum leap forward in an industry that had not seen much change. And it really paid off for, for this bank uh, for years to come. And so um, that was probably one of the very first leaders that I, I really admired and, and the reasons that I indeed admired him. So in my limited experience in management, I had come to, or I have come to the realization that I don't enjoy management. <laughs> I don't enjoy managing people. I guess I feel that I'm just not good at it because I have some of that people pleaser thing and doing uncomfortable things 
you know, I'll, I'll shy, I'll shy away from, and I've had to step into it as I've gotten older in different situations where I've had to try to be more of a leader, but I just don't feel comfortable. Like that's my wheelhouse. I mean, do you think some people are natural born leaders? Can we all learn it? I guess we can all learn to be better, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I don't know that I buy into the idea of natural born leaders, although I do think it comes more naturally to some than others. Um, I do believe that there is a calling to lead for all the reasons that you've said. And and part of the reason I've, I've come to believe that is there are many times in my career where I've had, and, and I spent the majority of my career in the IT industry, where I've had really good programmers, really good developers, or really good network people that were the senior people on the team. And when a leadership position opened, um, you would promote them. And early on, um, some of those succeeded and some of those failed. I mean, you can actually promote someone to incompetence, right? You, you put them in a leadership position, you don't give them any training, they don't have the skill set to lead, they don't know how to handle it, even the basics of just you know people supervision, and they fail. And then they end up leaving the organization because we as an organization promoted them to a place and didn't prepare them or give them the skills. Um, so I believe that there is an opportunity for people that believe, and this is what I started to do over time, is I would allow people the flexibility. Hey, you want to try it? You want to, you want to lead this team? Let's do it for six months to a year and see how you feel about it. See if you really like it. Because in some cases, they're not sure. Other people feel really called. They're like, man, I want to, I want to lead this team. And I, I want all the things that come with it, the difficult conversations and the people problems and the big decisions. Whereas others, like I mentioned, may just want to try it. And so I, over the latter part of my career, I've had much more success in allowing people to get into a role and see if it's a good fit for them first. Um, and, it's, and it's basically no harm in terms of, I don't see the person any differently. They were a great person on the team, great enough that we're going to give them a shot at leadership. But if they decide that's not their thing, that doesn't make them all of a sudden a bad professional now. It just means that that's not their thing. It doesn't motivate them. It doesn't give them energy. Instead, it takes energy away from them to be in these leadership roles. And so I do think it can, I, I do think leadership skills can be taught. What I do think needs to be present is a desire to be a leader or to lead and, and handle all of the address all of those things that come along with it. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Because I'm thinking that seniority is not always a great reason to promote someone, exactly. you know, and I've seen that situation in companies where, well, we're going to reward this person and give them the management position. And they're like, you know, no, I don't want to do that. You know, right. I'd rather be at my desk doing this or, you know, I'm better, I'm better dealing it with my computer than dealing with a staff and that kind of thing. And just like you're saying, that's where, where people will fail and then they'll blame themselves or, you know, feel that they're incompetent when it's really just not not their skill set. And that's kind of the conclusion that I came to and just, you know, when I was trying to manage a staff and I thought, you know, I really like being an Indian better than being a chief. Yeah. You know, like I love collaboration. I like working with people. And I like more of a democratic approach where everybody can have a say and then a decision is made. I mean, obviously someone has to be in that point to kind of pull the trigger, yep. you know, and make, make that decision. But I, I, I like, I agree with what you're saying, but sometimes maybe trying it out might be the better fit than throwing someone into the deep end and, and making them the VP or something. And then everything comes crashing down. I have had great success with it. And it now has sort of become my standard model for, for how we handle promotions, especially for those folks that aren't 
Sure. And in some cases, you know, as leaders, you can see leadership qualities in another person, even when they don't see it in themselves. And so sometimes you have to coax them into trying it just because you know they're going to succeed, but they're not so sure themselves. And so I've, I've seen those cases as well. But um, the model of allowing people the flexibility to try and not feel like a failure or have a soft landing place if it doesn't work out uh, works very well. Right, right. I love that. I want to talk about some of the principles in the book too. So I'm going to jump into some of these. And one of them, that, which is a, a big thing that I've noticed um, in, in, in other organizations that I've worked at, is the desire to make money and succeed is not wrong or corrupt especially in a mission-driven or spiritually-based organization. And I experienced some of this dissonance when I worked at Hay House, the big publishing company, and, and I would hear from listeners of the radio network that they were upset that prices that were charged for certain things that Hay House was offering, like online courses or events, and they complained that it was a money grab and that, well, you're so spiritual, you should be giving all those things away. Right. And, and I remember telling someone on the phone who was complaining to me about this, and I said, well, what about all the people that work here? You know, what about paying their salaries? Don't you think about that? Should we just give everything away for free? And, and they were kind of taken aback by that. Like they didn't think that there were actual living people that paid their bills there, <laughs> you know, that had to be paid for what they did. Yep. So it's kind of funny how people equate that spirituality and poverty type thing, or maybe not poverty, or not charging money, you know, for your services. And so I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that, because I think it's interesting, especially in this space. It's just that. And, I, and, and what I really want to try to do is I'm not trying to get into some big debate about, you know, capitalism and its benefits or anything like that. All I'm trying to say is, is, is basically what you alluded to, that the, the desire to be successful and to make money does not equate to someone being less spiritual. It doesn't mean that's all you're focused on. In fact, you, you hit the nail on the head. Money is the energy of exchange that we use in this, in this world right now. And you have to have it to continue to exist. So if you have a great mission or a great product, the only way that you're going to be able to continue to exist and attract talent and grow your mission is to make money. And somehow, uh, as you alluded to, especially in nonprofits and, and religious organizations, there's this association with, as you mentioned, uh, money being evil. And if we're spiritual, you know, we can't be, we can't want to be successful and want to make a lot of money. And I just don't think the two need to be tied together. I don't know how they, how they became tied together other than, you know, lots of historical writings on, on the, um, on the evil of money, but money is just the energy. It's not uh, itself evil. It's the greed and corruption that, that can go along with it. And so I just wanted to say it out loud that it's okay to have a prosperous consciousness. It's okay to desire to make money so that you can continue to do the ministry work or the mission work or whatever it is you're doing in the world. Uh, and, and really just trying to sort of erase this connection between I can't want both. I can't be deeply spiritual and want to be profitable. The two aren't connected in that way. And if you look at the universe, we live in an abundant universe. Um, and we, we have the ability to create and attract many things in, in our world. And we should not be ashamed uh, to want to attract 
the financial resources, number one, that we deserve, and number two, that can help us achieve or accomplish the mission that we have set before ourselves individually or collectively as an organization. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, where this has gotten skewed a little bit, and I'd love to get your your take on this, is what's been called the prosperity gospel, that God rewards the faithful with wealth. You know, we've heard a lot of spiritual teachers talking about abundance and prosperity and that kind of thing. Um, But then we've seen it go go off the rails, you know, like these people with extravagant lifestyles, you know, the spiritual leaders with 80 Rolls Royces and that that kind of thing. I mean, that's the extreme, right? Sure. Um, how do you think that we could reframe this in a healthier way that, you know, like you were saying, it's okay to want to make, make money in, in a spiritual sense, but then, yeah. you know, does God reward the faithful, that kind of thing? Yeah. I think the prosperity gospel goes a little too far. And I talk a little about this in the book. There's, there's not some God out there that's rewarding people or making them rich based on their, their, their faith. Um, the way I like to think about it is I'll break it down into the, the basics of thought and emotion um, and, and sort of give a, a basic tutorial on, on how that works. If you decide that you're not worthy of a lot of money and you're not going to get a high paying job, if that's sort of a decision you've made or your underlying uh, belief, then everything you think about and every action you take is shaped by that belief. I don't know if that makes sense, but you're never going to see yourself uh, being able to talk to this person and get a job with that company because you've decided that you're not worthy of that and you can't get there. And so you you create these ceilings and limitations for yourself in both opportunity and thoughts and actions. That simple thought basically changes what you will choose to do and not do in terms of actions. And uh, so there's a great deal of power in what you choose to believe, which is why people talk about affirmations and they talk about vision boards and so forth versus the opposite. If you decide that I can be prosperous or I am prosperous and the universe is, is created to support me like it supports the birds and the squirrels and, and the plants, um, that mindset then opens you up to all sorts of possibilities that you may not have considered had you had the other mindset. Am I making sense here at all? Yes. The, self, the self-created ceilings are no longer there. So now you're making choices, completely different choices and taking completely different actions just based on the belief that you can and you will be supported. And so it, it's, really, um, it's really that simple and that complex. Your mindset further directs all of your decisions going forward and, and, and all of your beliefs going forward, which is why the mindset and visualization and, and vision boards and some of these things are so important so that you can open yourself up to the, the possibilities that are out there. Now, I'm not saying by any means that to go from poverty to prosperity is as simple as changing your mind, but I am saying that it is a contributing factor. And, and when you can start there and begin to build some confidence that way, uh, hopefully some other opportunities will indeed open up. 
It, it's so true. And I've seen it play out in my own life. And it's something that I really took away from my experience at Hay House, because I learned a lot of that from Louise Hay. And in asking her, I remember a conversation where we were talking about starting the company and you know how she did it. And I'm like, how did you do it, Louise? Because I'm thinking those same things now as I'm trying to start a business. Mm-hmm. And she said, I answered the phone and I opened the mail. Like, that's it every day, you know, answer the phone, open the mail. Yeah. I just, you know, like she headed in the direction that she wanted to go in. And she would say, she would always say, if if you're headed in the right direction, opportunities will come. And it's so true. It's like the opportunity to work with you, you know, four years ago, I I was unhappy and I'm like, what's going to happen next? What am I going to do? And I put it out there, you know, I, I want another opportunity. I want something to happen. And and it did like and doors open. So people think that's woo and and it's not. It, I think it's very true that and your mindset has a lot to do with it. And so I, I always try to be aware of it. And I can't say that I'm consistent all the time in thinking sure. that way, but it's a goal. Yeah. And that, that's why they call it a practice, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You, you have to practice it. And and I want to talk also about intuition because you talk about this in the book. And I think you're a very intuitive guy. Like I think you you go with your gut and you had a couple of great quotes in the book. Like I agree with Oprah that every time I've gone against my intuition or I felt that thing like, ah, you shouldn't do that. It's always been a mistake always, (laughs) you know, and I've always regretted it. And every decision or every job and like, and particularly like when, when we talked for the first time about working with unity and I just really felt in my gut, you know, I, I have to do this, you know, I have to make that change. And, and it's always been a, a good experience when you tap into that, you know, and I think more people need to pay attention to that little voice. You know, if it's telling you not to do it, don't do it. And you wrote about in the book, like you really felt strongly to take a corporate position when you were totally happy at the job you had at the time with Unity. And I thought also about like I was a, a rock and roll DJ, a big 106 and I was living the life. They're like, oh, you're Diane Ray. Show me your business card, free concert tickets. Woo. And then I had an opportunity to do something totally different that I had no idea what it was called Star System Network. And he said, look, we're starting this new network. And I came in their office and it was a computer terminal on a buffet table. That was it. Oh, wow. And everyone said, why are you quitting this great job? You know, you're getting all these perks. But I knew in my gut, I'm like, this is going to this is going to be something, a game changer. And it was, and it led to other things. So I just, I'd love to, for you to expand on that because I think people need to pay more attention <laughs> to their intuition, especially in business. Well, you're very kind. And, and I appreciate the acknowledgement of my intuition, but what the truth of the matter is, I, I didn't have intuition for the first half of my life. I shouldn't say that. I had it. I just didn't access it or know how to access it. And I had a belief that I couldn't access it. I actually believe that intuition was reserved for those with the gift, uh, you know, mediums and or psychics and, and people who uh, were touched in that way. And uh, it was really once I began, in, in my case, it was meditation that shifted everything for me. Uh, once I started a meditation practice, I started to get all these sort of intuitive hits or information or ideas and aha moments would start showing up like once a day instead of you know, once every six or eight months prior. And so I started to read a lot more about intuition and began to understand understand it a little better. And what I discovered is, so first of all, every single person on this planet is born with intuition. 
they can be as intuitive as they want to be or as op- intuitive as they are open to being. We are all gifted with an internal wisdom that can guide us. Once you accept that principle, then it's just about what does that look like for you? So I've talked to a lot of people about this. So for me, I get a very specific feeling, just like you mentioned, in my solar plexus area. It's a very affirmative feeling. Um, and in some cases, solutions will come forth with, with great clarity, not in the form of a spoken word, but it's as if someone had spoken it to me. It's just there in front of me and I can, I can see it. Um, other people see images. Some folks, they do art. They get inspired to do some art. And by the end of the, the art project, they have you know the answer they were looking for or the guidance they were looking for. So some people do hear with great clarity a voice. And so intuition can come in many shapes and sizes. It can be a feeling in the body. It can be images or, or any of the other things I talked about. And so once I really began to understand that and embrace that belief, then I just began to cultivate my own intuition more and more and more. And now it's sort of a natural part of my existence. I make a thousand decisions a day uh, at work or even at home. And I'm, I've, I've gotten to a place now where I constantly just check in with my gut um, on, on most of the decisions I make. And so my, my advice is to, to anyone who thinks they don't have it, you, you do and you can develop it. And I would encourage you uh, to do so. And it's a great tool for, and I don't want to lead people astray either. It doesn't mean I don't make decisions based on anything else. Um, there's, there's a healthy respect still, especially since I come from the tech world, for facts and data. And so you can take the facts and data and you can take anecdotal data and then you can apply your intuition to all of it and you'll land where you wish to land. Yes, that's so true. I mean, you have to have the data, you have to have the facts, but the more you're aware of that feeling, and I'm so glad you brought up meditation because you talk about your practice. And I remember very clearly when I first came to Unity Village and how beautiful I thought the campus was, just what an amazing place. And you were showing me around and you showed me that little room where people pray over all of the silent unity prayer requests. And there's just such an amazing feeling in that room. It really feels holy where that big chair, there's like this ornate chair. And you said that you come in there and you would sit in there and use that space to tap into your own intuition and to meditate and and get quiet. And I think that people really need to take another look if they've dismissed a meditation practice. Like it doesn't have to be an hour long sitting cross-legged type of thing on a cushion, which is great if you can do that, but it it can be a walk, you know, it can be five minutes whatever, you know, or I'll even, I'll read my daily word in the morning or something, a few minutes just to cultivate that and it'll grow stronger. Yeah, you are spot on. And I'm so glad you said that because people hear the word meditation. They're like, okay, I don't know how to do it. And I don't have all that time. And, and so you hit on two of the really powerful elements. It doesn't take a lot of time. When I first started my practice, I would start with three minutes. (laughs) Um, and, Prior to that, I read, I'm going to say 20 books, 15 to 20 books on meditation, because I had to get it just perfectly right. Turns out there is no right, perfect way. The whole point of meditation is just to quiet the chattering mind. It's to create some space between the the constant thoughts that are rattling through our head um, to get that to quiet down and create some space between yourself and those. And 
When you do that, that creates the opening for intuition or aha moments or, or uh, you know, any sort of um, information you may, may be seeking can come through that opening. The key is to create the opening. And some people like to sit in meditation. I'm fine sitting in meditation. I, I do about a 10 to 15 minute practice a day. I really like it. Other people, like you said, take walks and they they are able to quiet their mind by being in nature and feeling and observing nature. Others paint. Um, still others do yoga. And so it, it's really, again, it's a little bit like your intuition is going to be unique to you. Your practice to get you in a space to be able to connect with your intuition is also unique to you. It's anything that will allow you to quiet the mind enough so that you can receive inspiration. But people need to explore those options and see what works. And I remember first learning meditation and I did the same thing you did. And I thought, oh, I have to sit for a certain amount of time. And um, I was fortunate enough to learn from a, a really great guy at Hay House named David G. And I did one of his retreats. And if you would have told me that I would enjoy sitting in silence with several people, you know, in a room and that I think it's great, I think you're crazy. But then that became something I really enjoyed. And there were other people at Hay House where we would go in the conference room at the end of the day and do a 10-minute meditation with a couple of other people. And I just loved it because I would get that energy from everybody else and just sitting in silence was nice. But if you had if you had suggested it to me previously, I'd be like, I'm not going to sit in silence with people. It's crazy. Yeah, so you, it, you find what works. You do. And it really shifts, uh, like you said, it starts to shift your frequency. And when I say frequency, what I mean is we're used to going at 100 miles an hour, always having something in our hand, always thinking about something. And the more you find space to, to connect to a little bit of stillness, the more you sort of crave it. And not necessarily that you crave, you know, going into the stillness, but you begin to resist the constant energy and constant shattering and, and constant flow of activity. Um, it, it, you begin to say, okay, I need some space. You know, I need, I need a little quiet time. And so it really builds on itself. And it's, uh, it's a very cool experience if you can find what works for you. Absolutely. It's important. I mean, even now, like my husband will say, why don't you take a walk? (laughs) (laughs) Go out, take a few minutes. You've been in front of the computer too long. And yeah. And if I don't, my brain will start to fritz, you know, like start going nuts. So it's really important. So I also want to talk about in the workplace, you know, difficult people and personalities and, and dealing with those kind of situations. And, and I've learned a lot over the years. I'm, I'm still learning how to, you know, effectively like communicate and and deal with people. I think it's a lifelong, a lifelong thing, but something I really learned in my, my previous job through the meditation teacher, David G was the a person I was having an issue with. And I, I won't say exactly who, but I had to really confront this person and say, look, I'm trying to communicate with you. You're trying to communicate with me. There's, there's something that's not happening. Like we were at such an impasse, you know, and, and I'm like, you don't have to like me. I don't like you. Like, sh- I'm sure she didn't like me probably just as much, you know, it, it was just a difficult situation, but I really tried to reach out and see that person and what they were going through from a different perspective, like being the witness. Yep. I'm, I'm a big Ram Dass fan too. I've read all of his stuff. And so I tried that, that technique, you know, I really tried to put myself, well, maybe she's scared in her situation. And 
it, it really helped. And I'd love to say that like the end of that rambling story that me and this other person became best friends and, and we really didn't, but I mean, <laughs> it, it made the situation much more tolerable. And, and, and I tried to really understand coming from that other person's perspective. I mean, how, how have you dealt with that or, or dealing with, you know, you just don't like that person or you're two different people. You just don't get along, but you're in a work situation and you have to resolve it in some way. Yeah, sure. And, and, and so you touch on a number of things there that I really struggled with early in my career. I was a conflict avoider early in my career. I did not want to be in conflict with people. Um, I did not want people to not like me. And I was also afraid of people's overreaction, you know, or backlash back at me. And so, um, but once I started to sort of move towards leadership, I knew that was a skill I was going to have to become accustomed to the idea of having difficult conversations, um, the idea of confronting people on, on certain things and issues. And so, you know, once again, I, I threw myself into research and, and, uh, you know, began to see what might or might not work for me over time. What I've come to, to realize is, look, we're all different and unique. And so the likelihood of you running into someone who doesn't match your personality is, is pretty high. Um, we're not all going to like everyone and everyone's not going to like us. And, and you're also going to, in a leadership role, have to have difficult conversations where someone's behavior performance needs to be addressed. Um, and those conversations aren't easy either. What I have found that works is to really sort of, you know, step back and say, okay, I need to just focus on the facts and the data here. So let's, let's talk about a performance problem. If it's a performance problem you have to address, what you're focused on is, this is sort of what was what we were asking to be done. This is what did not happen. <laughs> and so now there are repercussions for that. And I'm here to talk to you about what those repercussions are. So you take the emotion and the energy out of it. You even take the personality and the person out of it. It's just a situation. It's, uh, it's about the situation, not the person. And so that level of detachment can sort of help to, to create a space for you to have some of these these difficult conversations. The key, the other key is what you talked about. It's to also be prepared to listen first. Don't just jump in with, you know, this is the problem and, and here's what we need to do about it and so forth. Be open to asking some questions. You know, why do you think this is happening? Is there something we can be doing that, that uh, might, might shift in this direction, you know, might shift this direction? Because, Again, we're all humans. We're all having a human experience and life could be getting in the way. And so there's an opportunity to to listen and learn and and gather some information, um, you know, prior to just moving right to addressing that issue. In terms of difficult people um, that are just difficult to work with, I think your approach was amazing. Um, I, I'm a firm believer in transparency in all things. And so I think it was great for you to approach the, the person directly and and just acknowledge, hey, we're, we're having a tough time here and how do we get past this? And again, you're going to use the same skill sets. You're going to ask some questions. You're going to listen. You're going to try to empathize and understand from their perspective. And just during that exercise of asking some questions and listening, you'll be able to come to some form of agreement forward. And it may be like you mentioned, you don't end up liking each other any better, but you've at least created a bridge enough for you to be able to to work together. And so yes. uh, my advice is to be transparent in both of those cases, detach uh, where you can, 
um, and then use again, you know, listening and empathy and, and try to find somewhere where you can build some common ground. Exactly. I, I learned so much from that situation because I was so resistant to even talking to that person. Yeah. You know, no, I hate her guts. And I'm sure she was probably thinking the same thing, you know, <laughs> but just the, the fact of trying to get over that, it's like, you know, you feel this, I feel this, you know, let's try to communicate. And, and we did. And, and, and it was, it, it did make that a little bit better. So, I mean, it was definitely, (laughs) it was a learning experience. That's for sure. So I want to talk about failure. I mean, no one wants to talk about failure, but I think we can learn a lot from that. And I read a great book a few years ago by Tavis Smiley called Failing Up uh, during my Hay House years. And he shared some of his biggest mistakes that he made over the years on his TV and radio shows. And some of them are really funny, like things that happened during an open mic talking about a guest and then they heard everything he said. And then he had to go and interview this guy after he said a bunch of <laughs> negative things. And it was funny reading because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, if I would do something like that. But like when I look back at things that I've thought of as failures, you know, they've always led to something else. Even, you know, even if I lost a job, like a job I had in Texas and, and we all got, we all got let go and it was devastating at the time, but then it led to something better. I mean, what are your thoughts on learning from and turning around what we perceive as failures? I think you just uh, you just described it perfectly. I think for centuries, failure was this huge stigma. And so, if you tried something and did not succeed, um, I'd say you know, kind of society as a whole would then label you as a failure. And so, that became embedded in our collective consciousness, where we were all raised with this idea that if if we fail, we're failures. And so I was so grateful. Um, I'm going to say in the in the you know mid 2000s or so, um, around 2000 and, and you know eight nine, when Silicon Valley really began to pop the the, the balloon and myth of of failure, um, because there was so much activity around startups um, that failure was no longer a thing. To fail at something didn't mean you were a failure. It means you failed at that initiative and you could learn from it and move on. And it really caught on. And so, you know, all kinds of authors wrote books like the one that you read, Failing Up. Others wrote books about failing fast. And, you know, if you're not failing, you're not innovating. And so out of the valley came this, this, ide- this new ideology around failure. Too many times we as individuals own even just our personal efforts. You know, we have a misstep and, and we, we call it a failure and then we label ourselves and carry around this feeling about ourselves that we're failures. And that's in the book, I really just want to dispel that and, and, and say that failure is just, a much, just as much a tool as anything else. And oh, by the way, anytime any of us, individuals or organizations, try something new, there's going to be a chance that we fail. If you do, all you do is pick up and learn from that and move on or try something different. Doesn't mean you're a failure. Don't carry that baggage. Don't label yourself that way, not as an individual or not as an, an organization. And so the, the idea for me is to really to encourage people to try and to keep trying and to not, not see it as, as failure, but see it as, okay, version 1.0 didn't work. I'm going to move on to, to version 2.0. And, you know, if you look at some of the greatest success stories in the world, you mentioned Oprah earlier, she failed many times to try to reach the pinnacle of of where she was trying to get to. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team 
Um, Walt Disney, uh, Einstein, you know, both were labeled and that they weren't going to amount to much. And so there were many people that failed early on, but, but were strong enough and had the strength to not see themselves as failures and overcome that, that sort of stigma. So, uh, I think that's the, the real message is just because you fail at something doesn't mean you're a failure and please continue to try, learn from whatever that experience is and then carry it with you to the, to the next iteration. And there is some truth in what you said in that sometimes what we perceive as a failure is really just the proper ending to something because the next thing is really where we're supposed to be in terms of, of our calling. Uh, or the, you know, the next opportunity is right there in, in front of us. And there have been times where I've looked back and said, Oh, I can see why that didn't work out because then if it hadn't, you know, in the moment I didn't feel that way. Right. Right. But with hindsight, certainly you can, you can begin to connect some dots. So good observations on your part. <laughs> well, I've failed many times. No, I mean, just, I think that my fear of failure is more my fear of, if I don't take this opportunity, I'm going to regret it. And I, my fear is of regret, not more of failure. Yeah. I mean, we've all certainly failed. And this new venture that I'm doing now with mindbodyspirit.fm, there's no guarantees. I mean, I hope that it won't fail. And I've kind of adopted, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Andy Andrews, who was kind of big in contemporary Christian circles as a writer. And he would tell this story called Burn the Boats. And it's like, you can't go back because you burn the boats. So failure is okay. not an option. Yeah. You can't sail back. Yeah. I, I forget the whole thing of the story, but there was an invasion of something involved in this. And the, the, the lesson was that, well, we can't go back. We burn the boats. So we have, we have to succeed. So that's how I'm kind of thinking of this venture is that I'm not going to think it's going to fail because I burn, I burn the boats. I can't go back. Yeah. 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 And that's a, that's actually a great attitude. And I think that's so necessary, Diane, for entrepreneurs and even organizations. One of the things that I think that hampers many organizations is the fear of failure, the fear that they'll try something new and it won't work. And so what happens is they become stagnant and complacent and there's no room for growth or innovation um, because the, the, you know, the simple fear of, of, uh, of failure. And so where you can as leaders uh, lose that, be willing to take the risk and just know that if it doesn't work out, you'll try something different. Right, right. There's all kinds of opportunities out there. And I love everything you say in the book about change and transition. And I hope that people really give this a read. And I mean, I don't want to take too much of your time. There's so many more things I could ask you, but I'd like to know what what's going to happen next, like, you know, going forward for yourself as a leader and for unity, like, where do you hope things would be in the crystal ball, like five to 10 years from now? Gosh, you know, I get asked that question a lot. And what I would say is I'm, I'm pretty happy in the role I'm in right now. Uh, it was a calling for me to be here. And I f sort of feel like I'm in my sweet spot. And so I, I don't have a ton of vision around, you know, what would be next or what could be next, because I, I feel like I'm, I'm really sort of hitting my stride here. And as an organization, we're in a really good place. What I would say is, and this is truly my hope, is that this book, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be some, some national bestseller, although that would be awesome. <laughs> right. I, I do hope that it has an impact. I mean, it, it gives people permission to, to lead in a different way, and it, it helps people understand um, how they can shift sort of their mental and emotional posture and, and the impacts that has on individuals and leaders. Because 
to be honest, Diane, I, I had some experiences with some really, really bad bosses. And I mentioned just briefly earlier how we carry that home. But I mean, it was really stressful for me in, on a couple of occasions. And, and when you're in the technology industry, you're on call a lot. And I can remember, you know, being at home and seeing my boss's name come up on my phone and just my, I could feel it physically. Like my heart would sink into my stomach and I'd have almost this sick feeling like, oh no. And to think about that now, I mean, how many years did I do that? And how, you know, that's a, that's a physical reaction, right? That takes a toll after time. Now that doesn't even mention the mental turmoil I was experiencing, you know, when those phone calls would occur. And so, um, I guess, you know, one of the things I hope is that people will, will take a glimpse at this book and apply some of these leadership practices so that no one else ever has to go through the experiences of a bad boss because it does filter into your personal life and your family. And it's really just not a healthy experience, uh, emotional or physical. So, no, I'd not say, at all. And you write about that in the book. And I'm very familiar with that feeling. And, and I remember on Sundays before, I, you know, I have to go to work Monday and my husband would say, what's wrong with you? You're going to the dark side. Because I would really get a literal feeling of dread. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to feel like this. You know, no. I would just go into this dark place and I'd ruin my whole Sunday yep. because I was worried about what was going to happen Monday. And I would just, yeah, it, it's just not worth it. And I, I hope a lot of businesses and leaders read this, the Zen Executive. I think it's going to make an impact. And it's available now on Amazon as well as unitybooks.org. So people should give it a read. And thank you for giving me this time, Jim. This has been really fun for me. It is my honor to be with you. And uh, it's such a pleasure to have served with you over the last decade. You are a brilliant light and uh, a wonderful professional at what you do. And, and so it's really my honor to, to spend some time with you today. Thank you so much. Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.